Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. I am grateful this morning to get to introduce you to our guest teacher this morning, Mike Goldsworthy. Uh, Mike served for several years. Ooh. Hey. Let's get away from each other. <laughs> Mike served for several years as a pastor in Laguna Beach, California, where he still lives with his wife and two teenage kids. He also has worked as a professor and is the creator, cultivator, kind of convener of a network of churches and pastors and people who are finding themselves increasingly in this post-evangelical space, which is actually where a lot of um, our work with, our interaction with Mike comes into play. Um, Mike does a lot of coming alongside individuals and helping them in transitions, and in particular through the process of deconstruction and reconstruction, which I think a lot of us can relate to here. And also specifically comes alongside pastors and churches and helping them navigate these post-evangelical realities. So we're really excited to have him here. If you would join me in giving him a warm welcome. Mm. Thanks. Thank you, Becca. Well, thank you, DCC friends. It is a gift to be with you all, genuinely. And um, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but as Chad was leading us through that liturgy that was um, important and powerful, uh, I was remembering um, Friday, March 13th, 2020. And that was the day that the world shut down for a lot of us. That was the day that schools closed down. But there was another experience that my family had that day. I had gone to pick up my daughter from school. She was in junior high at the time, and I had picked her up, and my wife was going to pick up my son. He was in high school. He was a freshman. And as I had my daughter in the car, and we were driving, and we were talking about how schools were shutting down and all that was going on, I get a call from my wife, and she says, Isaac's school has an active shooter right now. He's on lockdown. I can't get a hold of him. And we pulled over the car and we sat there texting him, texting his friends, not hearing anything. 10 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, and we finally get a text message back from him. And it felt like hours. We finally get a text back from him. And he said, they tell us to turn off our phone during an active shooter when there's an active shooter. And I did that. And we're like, but nobody else did. And everybody else was hearing from their kids. And we like had this like moment. And as soon as that wave of relief hit us when, when we found out that he was okay and that everybody in the school was okay and that the police had gotten the active shooter, when we found out we had that wave of relief, I turned over to my daughter and I was crying. And I said to her, I said, Kate, I am so sorry that you have to grow up with this. I'm so sorry that this is normal for you. I'm so sorry that this is the kind of world that we're handing over to you. Like, we've got to do better, and I know that your generation will do better. 
And, and I tell that to you because this is one of the things that I appreciate about this place, about this community, about this church, is that this is one of the places that I know you all give me hope, not just for the church, but for the kind of world that we're creating, that not only the kind of world that you and I get to be a part of, but the kind of world that our kids and their kids will get to be a part of. And communities like this give me hope. I remember several years ago, it was the very first time I came out here to DCC. I had formed a relationship with, with Michael, your pastor, and, and I, I had come out here to visit some family. We have family out in Castle Rock. And so I come out to visit some family. I was going to be here over the weekend. And so I drove down and, and came to church. It was at the other location when you had that, the Wash Park location. And I remember sitting in the corner, and I was trying to make sense of my pastoral vocation. I was trying to make sense of the reality of church life and even the way that my own faith was growing and expanding and changing. And like, how, how do I make sense of all these things? How do I integrate all these things? What do I even do with this? Is there like a future for the church? Is there a future for me in the church? Like, what do I do? And I remember, I remember as I sat in the corner, I felt like I began to catch a glimpse of the church being reimagined for me. And that's some of what my experience of DCC has been, that this is a special place. It's a gift for me to be here because this is a special place. I know it's a special place for you and here locally, for those of you that are a part of this church. But I want to tell you, it's a special place for a lot of us beyond the borders of Denver, beyond the borders of Colorado. It's a special place for a lot of churches who are trying to reimagine what does it look like to be the church in our time and our place, and how do we grab a hold of this ancient faith, and how do we also reimagine it for the future, and like, how do we do that, and what does that look like, and this has been a really important and special place for all of that, and so I'm so grateful for you all, and I'm grateful for the work of healing that you all are engaged in and committed to. And even a part of what we want to look at today in the text where we're looking at the story of Jesus that's told by Luke, I think a part of what we're going to get to look at is a part of what it looks like for us to be a people who have some sort of sustainability, maybe, in that sort of work of healing. There was, um, there was a time several years ago I had first started growing out my beard, and this is how you start all good stories. I first started growing out my beard, and it was a good beard. I mean, Colorado, you would be proud of my beard. It was big. It was burly. It was like, it was kind of gnarly. In fact, I was doing some work with an organization at the time, and it was remote work. And so they'd ask me, would you send in a headshot of yourself so we can pass it along to our staff so that when they're interacting with you, when you're on phone calls with them, when you are emailing, that they have an idea of who they're talking to. And so I sent them a picture, and it was when I had this big, burly beard, and one of the guys responded, and he said, he looks like he could chop down a tree just by staring at it. Like, that's, that's how good the beard was. And at my church at the time, like, I, I, you all probably don't experience this because Michael is such a much more, like, engaging and generous person than I am. I'm super awkward in conversations. And so people in my church were constantly trying to figure out, like, how do we relate to you? How do we be friends with you? How do we talk to you? And so they're, uh, like, always looking for something, some connection point. And so when I was growing my beard, like, people would come up to me and talk to me about it because, like, they wanted some connection point. And I started to develop, like, these standard responses, and somebody would be like, hey, what's it been like to, like, have a beard and grow a beard? Like, what a weird conversation. But this is, like, what we would talk about in Long Beach, California, after church services. And so, like, they would say that, and I would have this standard response where I would say, like, you know, I had no idea 
that like there was so much maintenance involved in having a beard, right? Like those of you that have, like I, I thought a beard meant like I'm just like not caring and I gotta like let this thing go, but it, it involves a lot of work. And so I would like talk about that. And, and there was this one time that an older couple came up to me and they said the same thing that so many of us said, like, what's it, like, how's it been growing a beard? What's it been like for you? And I said something slightly different that I'd never said before. I said, you know, I had no idea that there'd be so much manscaping involved in this. And the woman, this older woman, her eyes get real big and she says, what, what, did, what did you just say? And I said, yeah, like, I had no idea. Like, I have to do so much manscaping now. And I had, I had just no idea. And she leans in real close and she says, because there's all these people around and she whispers, she says, Mike, I don't think that means what you think that it means. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed it off, like, yeah, you know, ha <laughs> whatever. And as I'm walking away, I pull out my phone and I start Googling manscaping, which I do not recommend doing right now. Like, the church's filtering software will catch it before you do that. I have found I often have these experiences, these encounters with the scriptures where I'm bringing something to the text, I'm bringing some sort of understanding, some sort of like my experience, my lens, those things, and I have these constant experiences where I find the text saying to me, I don't think that means what you think that it means. And as we get into the passage that we're looking at today, there's this encounter that Jesus has, several encounters, where he begins being given a moniker, he begins being said about him that he has power and authority. And what I expect that to mean, what I expect that to look like, the way I expect power and authority, the implications of that and how it works itself out, I find the text asking me to lean in and say, like, I don't think that means what you think that it means. And so we're going we're gonna to pick up in the story of Jesus as Luke tells it in Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 31. Here's what Luke writes. He says, Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. There's something, there's something about the way that he communicates. There's something about the way that he teaches that it grabs people and it pulls people in in this different kind of way. It's different than what they're used to. And the difference, according to Luke, is that it's because his words have authority. Now, that doesn't seem to me what I might make it mean. If I'm ascribing somebody as having authority, what I often mean by that is that they agree with me. And I agree with them, and so therefore they have authority. Uh, I was pastoring at this church, as Becca mentioned, it was in Long Beach, and I was there for 19 years. And one of the things that I discovered that would happen is after I would preach, I'd, people would come up to me and they would like compliment me and say, like, oh, that was a really good sermon. Thanks, Mike, for that good sermon. And like early on, like that felt really good. But then over the years, what I began to realize is that when people would come up to me and they'd say that afterwards, what they actually meant was, was this. And they said, they were saying, Mike, what you have said has just confirmed all the convictions that I already came in here with. And so thank you for not stretching me and thank you for not challenging me. And instead, thank you for giving me more fodder to use against people who I already disagree with. We often recognize authoritative voices based off of beliefs, convictions that we already hold to. And so we'll end up with these confirmation biases, assigning authority to something or someone because of a conviction we already have. But that doesn't seem to be what causes Jesus's words to be recognized as having authority. In fact, in the parallel telling of the story, the way that Mark would tell it, Mark 
has an additional sort of like couple of words that give us maybe a little bit of insight here. Mark would say it this way. Mark says that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Somehow his teaching is differentiated from the teachers of the law. They're the ones who knew the right things, who had done the right training, who were in all the right positions. They're the ones who in that cultural context would have been given an authoritative voice, and yet Jesus is the one who's having authority, is seen as having authority as he speaks. And we start to get a little bit more of a picture of why, I think, as the story continues on in Luke, verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Now, whatever it is that's being identified as being possessed by a demonized spirit, like Luke doesn't seem to be concerned with trying to figure that out. There's no explanation about like, well, what is that exactly? How did that happen? When did that happen? What does that mean? And and we can really easily, in a text like that, you can easily end up in the weeds uh, where where you're trying to like conjecture about like, what does this actually mean? What was actually going on here? Was it actually really some sort of supernatural force? Was it something that they identified at the time as a demonic force, but maybe now today we would have a different understanding? And if we're having that same experience today, we might give it a different label. We might, might have different language for today, and we can, we can get kind of caught up in a bit of conjecture. But if we do that, we're going we're gonna to end up missing what actually matters more here to Luke, that there's some kind of evil, some kind of evil influence at work in this man, and it's keeping him from living in wholeness. This evil influence is keeping him in, in like the biblical language for what it's keeping him in is bondage. It's keeping him from the good, free, beautiful life that he's designed and created for. It's keeping him from being able to live out of his truest, fullest self. It's keeping him trapped. And maybe you'll remember from a few weeks ago, earlier on in Luke, that Jesus says this kind of work, this kind of freeing, this kind of healing is actually at the heart of his mission. Here's here's what he would say in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, that God's spirit has empowered me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. With authority and power, he does this. He's been empowered by the Spirit to bring freedom for those who aren't free, for those who are missing the good, free, beautiful life that God has designed and created them for, to break them free from whatever it is that's holding them captive and keeping them from that life. He has been uniquely empowered by the Spirit to do that work. And when he does that work that he's been uniquely empowered by the Spirit to do, here is the response, verse 36. All the people were amazed, and they said to each other, what words these are, with authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. With authority and power he does this. 
the recognition, it seems, of the authority and power of Jesus that sets him apart from others, that sets him apart from others maybe who are teaching even similar things, maybe who are saying some similar things at times. The thing that seems to give him authority and power seems to have to do with him living out the things that he is uniquely able to do because of the Spirit's empowerment, which leads me to recognize that there are ways that you and I actually have power and authority in our lives as well. In these places where you and I have been uniquely empowered by the Spirit. The language that we use to talk about this in church at times is a language that sometimes carries with it some baggage for some of us, but we might, we might talk about having a calling and feeling called to a thing. And some of us, some of us have tried to distance ourselves a bit from some of that kind of language because it's because it's been a bit heavy, it's been used against us, there's been some damage and hurt that's been done with it, but what it simply is saying is this, this way of saying that there's a deeply rooted passion, there's some sort of like pulling, there's some sort of tugging that's happening, that when you quiet your own voice long enough, you begin to sense the voice of the Spirit pulling you in this direction. And the Spirit, she never pulls you in a direction that's other than who you are. She's never pulling you in a direction that like diminishes your passions You're never being pulled in a direction that's about denying who you are, but in a way that's actually moving you towards the fullness of who you are. One author, Frederick Buechner, that when he was talking about like how to identify and understand what this is, he would talk about it this way. He says that it's the place where your deep gladness meets the world's great need. This intersection of your deep gladness meeting the world's great need and And my guess is that you have some sense of what that is. Some of you have some language and definition around it. Maybe maybe you aren't able to name it, but there's a sense, isn't there? There's something that's pulling. There's something that's tugging. There's some sort of deep resonance and joy. And it's like, I can't not do this thing. Whenever, whenever it is that you're doing that thing, whenever it is that you live that out, you're bringing more wholeness into that space, and you're bringing more beauty into that space. You're bringing more goodness into that space. And wherever you're living that out, that intersection of your deep gladness, meeting the world's needs, you, you're experiencing that. And maybe for some of you, that gets to happen in your job. Maybe it gets to happen in ways that you volunteer and you give of yourself to organizations, to communities like DCC and others. Maybe that happens in the way that you give yourself to schools and PTAs and little leagues. Maybe that happens in the way that you show up in your home or in your neighborhood. Maybe it happens in, like, in your spare time in some sort of way. It's sort of happening that you have these like, gifts and passions, this calling, this place where you're empowered by the Spirit to bring beauty and wholeness and goodness where those things have been lacking or maybe where those things have been oppressed, or maybe they're just like latent and they need to be called out. And, and when you live that out, that unique way that you have been empowered by the Spirit, when you live that out, it, it seems that other people take notice of it. People begin to recognize you for it. People start asking you about it. They ask for your advice in that area. They ask you for help in that area. They ask you to do things with them or for them in that area. Perhaps we could say that as that's happening, as you begin to like live that out and you get this sort of like recognition, that that becomes this place of power and authority for you. And it's in those places. It's in the places of our greatest strengths, the places of our power and authority where we have the highest capacity to live out of a shadow side. 
It's in that place where people recognize your power and authority that you will be most prone to give in to your false self. Where the greatest gift that we have to offer the world becomes the very thing that can cause the most hurt and pain for ourselves and for, for others. It's, it's this dichotomy that the very thing that you are uniquely empowered to do can also be the very thing that can wreak havoc on lives. And you've seen this, you've experienced this, right? Like, you, you have seen it with leaders who have this incredible charisma that they're able to, to call people to this cause and to move people to that. And then we've also seen those same leaders who use that same charisma for self-serving, damaging purposes. We, we've seen others who just seem to have this gift of like service that they, they are uniquely able to see other people's needs and come alongside them and help them and care for them and we've also seen some people who have that kind of gift actually use it to passive-aggressively like manipulate other people. Uh, we've seen the people who are able to be peacemakers, who can step into a situation and can see it from multiple angles and can help bring differing groups together and can, can actually like help to bring resolve in some of those places. And we've seen those same people not be able to like use their own voice because they're so caught up in the voices of others and that not bringing up your own voice causes them to harbor some bitterness and resentment that at some point ends up blowing up. We've all seen these times, we've had these experiences where the very thing that is the unique gift that somebody has to offer the world is also the very thing that causes havoc on others and on themselves, which is why Jesus, it seems, does this most fascinating thing, because it's in the very midst of being recognized for having power and authority. It's in the very midst of more and more people recognizing it and coming to him that he continues, as he continues to lean into it, and he continues to be recognized for it, and he continues to have more and more positive results from it, it also becomes the very thing that is like this doorway that opens up for him to create some limits and some boundaries. I mean, I mean what happens next is that Jesus goes to Simon's mother-in-law who has a fever, and he heals her of that fever, bringing wholeness to her. And then other people, they've been showing up. Other people are showing up. News had spread around the region about him, and so they're showing up, and they're bringing their family members and their friends who are sick, their family members and their friends who are demon-possessed, their family members and their friends who are being oppressed and are missing the good, free, beautiful life that they were designed and created for, and he's bringing healing for them, and he's doing all of that. And it's as he's doing all of that that he then does this verse 42 it says at daybreak Jesus went out to a solitary place the people were looking for him and when they came to where he was they tried to keep him from leaving them but he said I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea the people have this experience of Jesus They've experienced, in some ways you could say, the benefit of the empowerment of the Spirit bringing wholeness and freedom where there's been brokenness and oppression. And they don't want to lose that. I mean, out of a good desire to want freedom and wholeness, to want beauty and goodness in their region, in their community, in their homes, with their families, in, in their own lives, They've experienced, they want to see family and friends made whole. They want more of that. And so they've experienced this benefit of the work of Jesus, the benefit of the Spirit's empowerment in his life. And of course they want him to stay. Of course they want more of that. 
And my guess is, my guess is you have had times, you've had times where you've experienced at least a little bit of that, where you are doing this thing that you are uniquely gifted and empowered to do. You're doing this thing where you're living at that intersection where your deep gladness meets the world's great need. And that as you do that, people start asking more of you to give more of yourself, more of your time, more of your resources, more of your expertise, more of your skills, more of yourself. And it feels good when that happens, doesn't it? Because I'm getting some recognition. I'm getting noticed. I'm actually like I'm meeting a need. I'm actually helping. I'm doing something that's purposeful and meaningful. And so it feels so fulfilling. But there's this really subtle shift that can start to happen where we can start to be driven by the need to be needed. And it can start to no longer be about this calling that's deeply embedded in me, and instead it starts to become a way to mask me not having to deal with my own brokenness. It becomes a way for me to mask my own insecurities and my own fears, because it's a lot easier for me to be needed and to feel useful than it is to do the slow, difficult, and often lonely work of excavating my motivations and my fears and the core of my own longings. And if I haven't done that slow, long, difficult work, what can easily start to happen is I start to give in to other people's expectations. I start to give in to other people's wants and their needs because they're always going to ask for more. Like, why shouldn't they? It's not because they're bad. It's not because they're evil. It's not because they're selfish. It's because they recognize your power and your authority in this thing. And it's bringing about wholeness and beauty and goodness. And who wouldn't want more of that? And so it's why it's so instructive and it's so fascinating that it's at the point of the recognition of Jesus's authority and power that he withdraws again and he goes into solitude leaving the people who notice him, the people who recognize him, the people who appreciate him, and even the work that he's doing, leaving that. Because it's in solitude and it's in silence where you gain clarity about yourself, where you gain clarity about your calling, about your motivations, about your fears, about your insecurities, about your own brokenness that isn't yet dealt with. And it was in the very thing that people came to him for. It was in the very thing that he was recognized for. It was in, maybe you could even say, like his sweet spot that he withdraws. And out of that withdrawal, he then comes back with clarity and focus that he then limits his work. I mean, it seems to me to be completely counterintuitive from what we'd expect and from what some of us, at least, have been culturally conditioned to do. Because it's at the moment where I'm getting more recognition, where I'm getting more accolades, where I'm meeting more needs, where my work, my engagement is going like this, that it seems that what you should keep doing is you keep going like this. Because there's something happening, I'm being used in some sort of way, and there's something happening here where like, I'm actually helping people, and I'm doing this thing, and it feels good and like, meaningful, and I'm doing that, and so like, I can keep expanding, and it can keep growing and growing, and what Jesus actually does is this counterintuitive thing where he actually limits it, and he says, I've got to leave here, there's other things that I need to do, that's why I've been sent Parker Palmer, in his great book, Let Your Life Speak, which is 
a book everybody should read at some point. He says, our problem as Americans, at least, he says, among my race and my gender, which for him is white and male, is that we resist the very idea of limits. We regard limits of all sorts as a temporary and regrettable imposition on our lives. I mean, what I should keep doing is this, because to do this is an imposition. For, for some of us, like, limiting ourselves, not doing all that we've been asked, not doing everything that we could be doing, it can feel like missed opportunities. But what if it's actually a sign of greater clarity? What if it's actually a result of having done the long, slow, difficult, and often lonely work? What if there's actually, what if the gift in the place of our greatest recognition, what if the gift in the place of our greatest contribution, what if the gift in the place of our power and our authority, what if the gift is that that place is actually a doorway, not to keep doing more and more and more and more, but instead what if that gift is actually a doorway to an invitation into quiet reflection and discernment with the Spirit? I mean, it seems to me that this is the pattern that we see multiple times throughout Jesus' life and ministry, that there's this recognition of the work that he's doing. Luke calls it his power and authority, that he's uniquely empowered by the Spirit to do. But as Jesus is recognizing the work that he's doing, what we often then see him doing is some sort of withdrawal. And out of that withdrawal, out of that solitude, out of that even like wilderness at times, he then comes back with greater clarity and focus. So there's this recognition of power and authority, there's this withdrawal, and then there's this re-engagement with clarity and focus. It's out of the withdrawal that Jesus comes back clear that he has to move on from there because it's in that withdrawal that he's able to recenter himself on what his calling is, on what his power and authority, on how it's supposed to be used instead of just what other people want from it. And this process or this cycle of growing into the spaces where we are called, of recognizing where our deep gladness meets the world's great needs, of what it looks like for us to own and recognize our own power and authority, that cycle is not necessarily to do more and more and more with it, but to instead see that as a doorway that opens us up to doing the work of withdrawal that can cause us to then re-engage with greater clarity and focus. And I want to tell you, friends, that I am in the midst of doing this work along with you. I join you in this journey. At 29 years old, I became one of the youngest megachurch pastors in the United States, leading this church that I had been a part of in Long Beach. And in the circles that I was in, in the crowds that I was a part of, that led to certain kinds of recognition and accolades. It led me to being sought out for advice and invitation into groups and experiences that made me feel like like I had made it. And I remember saying to somebody, I remember saying, I'm not sure where to go from here because in my 20s, I've already hit the pinnacle point of my career, which is a very arrogant 20-something thing to say. But what began to happen, like, and I was saying because it felt good and fulfilling, but what, what, what had begun to happen was that over time, a subtle unconscious shift started to take place, where there was a role that I had been playing in order to keep at that position. There was a way that I had to be in order to keep getting that same recognition and to keep getting more of that recognition. 
I remember at one point what had happened was, because I didn't realize I was playing this role, and we had brought in this consultant to do some work with our church to help us understand a little bit better of who our church was and, and to figure out, like, what are some next steps that we should be considering taking as a church And this consultant came and did an extensive all-church survey, a survey of of everyone in our church. Uh, They then came and spent two days with focus groups of the most invested people in our church. And then after that, I hadn't met the consultant at this point. Somebody else had hired the group and arranged it all. And so after all of that, I then had an hour meeting with the lead consultant where her role was to get to know me more and to understand sort of like how I saw the church and And so as we were talking, we were about 30 minutes into our conversation, and she stops me, and she says, Mike, I would imagine that you must be experiencing quite a bit of anxiety. And I said, I am, and in fact, it keeps getting increasingly worse and worse every single year to the point where I'm having debilitating panic attacks now. I said, but like, how would you know that? Like, we're not talking about that. And she said, well, we've just done this extensive survey of your church. We've spent two days in focus groups with your most invested people. I feel like I have a pretty good idea of who your church is. And after spending these last 30 minutes with you, I'm starting to get an idea of who you are. And she said, I could only imagine that the only way that you could continue to lead this church for as long as you have and as effectively as you have is if you keep showing up as somebody other than who you are. And she was right. And what shocked me the most was that I hadn't realized that I had been doing that. I hadn't thought that I was playing a part. I I hadn't thought that I wasn't showing up as my fullest, truest self. It had just subtly started shifting over time as I subconsciously knew that this is what I needed to do to keep getting all those things that that feel good and helpful, that were using my giftedness, that were like in my sweet spot, that felt like this is my calling, and so I kept at it, and I kept trying to meet other people's expectations that felt like they just kept building. And the very thing that I was getting recognition for, the very thing that I was actually good at was the very thing that was also killing my soul. And so for me, it's been three years since I stepped out of that position. And I feel like I'm still actually in that wilderness of withdrawal time. I haven't yet gotten to that next step of clarity and focus. And frankly, like, I want to rush into it. Like, Jesus just went, like, in the morning, and then people came and found him, and he knew what to do. Like, I would like for it to be like that. But the reality is, and you know if you've had these experiences, whether you've had withdrawal because it's been forced upon you in some sort of way, or whether you have consciously and intentionally chosen some kind of withdrawal, what you know is it takes as long as it takes. And so it seems that there's a cycle that we will all go through, and we go through it multiple times, as we continue moving towards living out the unique way that we've been empowered by the Spirit. There's going to be recognition of that, recognition of that from yourself, recognition of that from others, You're going to be needed and wanted for what you have to offer. It's this place of power and authority for you. And if you have awareness of enough, you will intentionally have times and spaces where you'll withdraw from that to do the work of excavation that helps you to realign your motives, that helps to provide clarity and focus so that when you come back and you re-engage, you will let some people down because they want you and they maybe even need you But as you re-engage, may you be able to say like Jesus, 
I must go do this instead because that's why I've been sent. And so DCC, as you continue to be a community who explores and participates in the life of Jesus so that you can be a, a healing presence in the world, we need you to be a healing presence in the world. And so may you follow the pattern of the life of Jesus, the pattern of the life of the one who brought healing to the world. May you follow that same pattern as you do that own work in your lives. Can I pray for you? God, I'm so grateful for this special church, for this community of people exploring, learning what it looks like to live in the life of Jesus, to be a healing presence for the world. God, for our friends who are here who are still trying to figure out trying to put some language around, some definition, some understanding around the unique ways that your spirit is empowering them. God, I pray. I pray that you would begin providing them some clarity, some friends, some trusted mentors, some people that maybe are even already saying those things, and would you give them the ears to hear it? For those that are in that space of withdrawal and wilderness and are doing the long, slow, lonely work of excavation. God, may we not rush that. May we be sensitive to your spirit in that. And may we trust you in the process. And God, for those who have clarity and are able to continue moving forward in the good work that your spirit is calling them towards, is pulling them towards, is tugging them towards. May they continue to be a healing presence in the world as they recognize the space where their deep gladness intersects with the world's great need. And so God, may we, may we learn from, may we pattern ourselves after, may we be inspired by, and may we just trust the patterns of the life and work and ministry of Jesus in our own lives as well. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends.